the Philippines. God gave me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. When God gave us two eyes, two ears, and one mouth, so we can see and hear it twice before we speak once. And during all of my years in AA, before and after, I want to speak to you what my two eyes have seen and what my two ears have heard. During those years, whatever I tell you and whatever you learn from this speech, I know it's going to do you a lot of good. My lead is going to be something of miracles before AA and after AA. But you follow my lead and you'll see that God has got something to do right from the very beginning after I follow with my lead. God is through the whole lead. Last night, Clarence Snyder mentioned about how tough it was from the beginning of AA. It was tough. It was tough in those days. I remember we would have maybe... 25, 30, or 40 members in AA and passed the collection box. Very seldom you would find a quarter in there. It would be pennies, nickels, and dimes. That's how tough it was from the beginning. It was tough, like Clarence Snyder said. Clarence Snyder opened the Borden Group out of Africa, the world's first AA group, the Borden Group. He had a tough like he said last night, that they followed him and wanted to break the group up. But he stuck to it. He fought it. What did he have when they opened the Borton group? He asked Mr. Borton to go ahead and give him a little place to hold an AA meeting. Mr. Dr. Borton would give him a recreation room to hold the first AA meeting. The first AA meeting that was held. The world's first AA meeting. The pioneer group. And we are all pioneers today. I mentioned when I met Clarence Snyder's 43rd anniversary in Cleveland that he opened up in Cleveland Heights, the first group. And I mentioned then that I was standing on the mountain in Colorado Springs and I wondered how them pioneers ever made it through the West to open the trails through the West. They died. They closed to death, starved to death. They had the detour from the Colorado Mountains to New Mexico to the flat ground. But they made it. And that's the way it is in Alcoholics Anonymous. There are millions and millions of alcoholics that have died from alcoholism. And we have learned from their experience that this is the only solution that Clarence Snyder started from Akron, Ohio, when they tried to break them up. Whatever you do to go ahead... After you lay your heads on pillows, tonight, next month, next year, two or three or four years from now, concentrate on what I'm going to tell you. And you will see that God has got everything to do with it. He's got everything to do with it. I'll begin with my first drink in 1912. My grandfather bought a pop belly stove and they gave me five cents and a bucket to go to the saloon and get a five cent bucket of beer. To celebrate the Papali stove. And I remember him telling my grandmother to be sure to go ahead and rub the inside of the pail so it'll kill the foam and you get more beer for a nickel. I brought that pail of beer home. 
He filled three glasses, one for each of us, and that was the first drink I had in 1912. In those days, people raised large families, and there was either a christening or a birthday party, and I'd always manage to get my beer at the christening or a birthday. If there wasn't, the saloon keeper's son was a friend of mine, and we'd go down his father's basement and drink POC Pilsner beer. Now, I'm going to change the scene from that saloon basement for five minutes. I was playing peg night and dreaming the curb and the sidewalk, and I seen a drunken man coming towards me, and those days children were afraid of drunken men, so I ran on the eye, put the hook on the gate, waiting for the drunken man to go by, but instead... Mr. Kurtz, the most respected and the most wealthiest man in the community, approached this drunken man. As long as Mr. Kurtz was there, I wasn't afraid. But I was inquisitive to see what Mr. Kurtz was telling the drunken man, and these are the words I heard. With his hand on Stanley's shoulder, he said, Stanley, you are a good man, Stanley. You got a nice wife, nice children, nice home, and a good job. But Stanley, you drink too much. Look at me, Stanley. I drink every day. I take a drink in the morning, drink at noon, and drink at night. Stanley, did you ever see me drunk? Never, Mr. Kurtz. Never. That was the first time I ever heard anybody say about drinking too much. The next time I see Mr. Kurtz talking to a drunken man, I was inquisitive again. And I heard these words. Harry, you are a good man. But you drink too much, Harry. You got a nice wife, nice children, a good job at a nice home. You drink too much, Harry. Look at me, Harry. I drink every day. I take a drink in the morning, drink at noon, and a drink at night. Did you ever see me drunk? Never, Mr. Kurtz. Now, Mr. Kurtz's name is coming back in 1919 and in 1949. Remember what I said, that he was the most wealthiest man in the community and the most respected man in the community, and see what those years in 1949 will do. Now, I was a young boy going to the parochial school in Lorain, Ohio, and one of the biggest churches that they built in Lorain, Ohio. The biggest parish in the county. And the priest would go ahead and have me do different errands for him. He'd send me down to the basement to go ahead and fill the containers with holy wine. Now, God asked Adam and in the orchard and instructed him not to go ahead and pick any fruit. But they did. And that changed the history of the world. But the priest didn't say that I shouldn't drink any wine. They didn't tell me I should do but I always drank some of the holy wine when I was filled in the container. And believe me, I drank so much of that holy wine, sometimes I was really thinking I was holy. Now they built that big church, the biggest church in Lorraine County, and they had a vote. They wanted to go ahead and have a boy guard the Jesus in a manger on the grand opening of the church December the 25th. Well, God was born on December the 25th. It's a good thing we have a man, Clarence Ryder, born one day later that God is guiding him, December the 26th. They wanted to have a boy guide the Jesus in the manger, and by a coincidence, I was voted to guide the Jesus in the manger. The church was filled at capacity, standing rooms all occupied, and I'm guiding Jesus in the manger. And what did I say? Remember these words through my whole life. Don't worry, Jesus, I'm guarding you, I'm protecting you, that then no harm will come to you. Those are the words. 1917, I had the soldier's uniform on and a rifle for raising for President Wilson on Superior Avenue in Cleveland. That December the 25th, I was guiding Jesus in manger on Christmas Day. And I said, don't worry, Jesus, I have a rifle in the uniform now to guard you and protect you, that no harm will come to you. Remember those words. I got a job in 1919 in the post office as a letter carrier. And you know how a letter carrier delivers mail from house to house. 
And from a distance, I see a drunken man coming down the sidewalk, staggering from one side to the other, and I said, oh, no, no, it can't be him. That can't be Mr. Kirk. But the nearer he got to me, the more convinced I was it was Mr. Kirk. It was only a half a block from where he lived. I helped him get home with my mail carrier's uniform, and I said, all these years, from 1912 to 1919, he was telling people, all the drunks that he picked a drink in the morning, a drink at noon, and a drink at night, and nobody ever seen him drunk. Well, by golly, he is drunk now. And every time I seen Mr. Kurtz after that, he was drunk. In 1929, he lost everything that he had. Now, he's an alcoholic. He doesn't take a drink in the morning and a drink at noon and a drink at night. He's got to have something to drink all day and all night. And he's vocally manufactured his own booze and from agent Carter, the federal agent Carter, and he knew how wealthy he was, so they didn't press any charges. He was only making the booze for himself. Six months later, he died. Now, there's an example of a man drinking sociably. A drink in the morning, a drink at noon, and a drink at night. Now, in 1919, I got a job in that post office, and in 1920, I got married. And my wife said that I was drinking a little too much, and I says, I'll try to cut it down. I'm going to the bootlegger, and I'm going to only take three quarters, and I can't get drunk on three quarters. I'm not even going to drive the car. I'm going to walk. As I walked down East Avenue, I heard somebody call my name. I looked around. There was a fireman with a fireman's uniform, and he says, Ed, where are you going? I said, I'm going over to get a couple of drinks. Come on in here. They sell it in here. I went in. I bought him a drink and bought myself a drink. That's it. I'll buy another drink, but I only have three quarters. I only got one left. That's all right. The bootlegger will cash your check. Your checks are good. I didn't bring my checkbook. He's got some blank checks here. That was on the 18th day of June. I cashed the check for $25. Two o'clock in the morning, I wanted to go home. The bootlegger says, don't go. He says, plenty of rooms upstairs. Sleep up here. So the fireman and I slept there. His wife fixed breakfast and lunch at noon time and supper at supper time. And I cashed more checks. And more checks on the third and the fourth and the fifth and sixth day didn't even go out of the house until the eighth day of July. I only intended to buy three drinks. When I went home on the eighth day of July, my wife says, I thought you said you were going to go to the bootlegger and spend three quarters. While you were going from the 18th of day, day of June till the eighth day of July, I found another place to live. You know, too many bootleggers in Lorraine were going to move to a small town. Fine. We moved to another county in a small town. Now, it wasn't too long. I knew the bootleggers in Lorraine and Erie County. In 1922, I found out that I was an alcoholic. My hands were shaped, but I found a solution for it. Oh, boy, did I find a good solution for that. By taking something to drink, it'll stop the shake. I had the shake so darn often, I had to go ahead and drink more, and I was in the second stages of alcoholism. And in 23, I was in the third stages of alcoholism. And in 1924, I was in the fourth stages of alcoholism. I'd walk through the woods and on bark and leaves and roots, thinking I'd find a chemical that'll stop the craving of alcohol. Nothing helped. And if any of you never went through the third or fourth stages of alcoholism, thank God that you never will. Because if you think Halloween has funny faces, you should go through the third and fourth stages of alcoholism and see the funniest faces you ever see in your life, even with your eyes closed. My in-laws offered me a solid gold wash if I'd stop drinking for 30 days. I couldn't stop for 30 minutes. When the Warner Brothers Studios asked me to come to Hollywood to write the script for the Lost Weekend and Ray Milan won the Oscars, I had one hell of a time showing the carpenters how to go ahead and build the dummy walls so they could... 
jump snakes and rats and little mice telling tales of hate to live war. That was the third and fourth stages of alcoholism. What am I going to do? The doctor's training of alcohol. So I wanted to go ahead and get a shotgun and shoot myself. But the bell was too long and I couldn't. So something told me to go ahead and hang myself. So I went in the garage and got a rope and I threw it over the limb. Threw the rope over the limb and when I was ready to put the loop around my neck, I wished to God that somebody was taking a picture of that to see hundreds and hundreds of birds flying all over me, my face and head and body and all over. I didn't even have time to put the loop around my neck. I pulled the rope back off of the limb and threw it alongside of the garden and walked down the path and seen all them birds on the limb. So what the hell was them birds flying all over me? Remember what I said, I'm guiding Jesus in the manger. Now he's guiding and protecting me. There was no Catholic church in Florence, Ohio, so I drove my model team towards the Wakeman. You see, Father Kelly down there. Father, I've got a terrible alcoholic problem. Will you please help me? He put his hand on my shoulder and he said, Son, go home and pray. God will answer your prayers. Father, I already done that. He put his hand back on my shoulder again. He said, Son, go home and pray harder and pray longer. God will answer your prayers. That was the first time I had any confidence that it was something going to happen with my alcoholic problem. I went home and prayed. 1924, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29. With blisters on my knees. God, how much longer do you want me to pray to help me with that alcoholic problem? But I remember what the priest said, pray harder and longer, and I prayed five days longer, and the vision of God appeared in the front of me. And the voice of God said, close. Take your family and move to Ravenna, Ohio. There you will meet a well-dressed man. Four and a half billion people on this earth wouldn't know who that well-dressed man would be. Not even he, not even me. Only God knew what he would be. I told my wife about it. and She says, that must be an answer to your alcoholic problem. Where is Ravenna? Being acquainted with cities and states while working in the post office. I said, it's near Ackland in Portage County. The following Sunday, we moved and set the car and drove to Ravenna, Ohio, looked over the town, stayed overnight, landed a place on Wall Street, come back to Florence, Ohio, arranged the moving van. A day before moving, like the alcoholic would say, I won't go any bootleggers in Ravenna, I better take a supply with me. <laughs> so I went to a farmer and got three gallons of blackberry wine, went to a bootlegger and got two gallons of whiskey. The next day, the van come, I put that in a Model T Ford sedan and followed the van to Ravenna, Ohio. We set up housekeeping on a Tuesday. I told my wife on a Wednesday, I'm going to go ahead and follow God's instructions and meet the well-dressed man. I stood on corners in Ravenna, moved in different spots all day long. Nothing happened. When I got home, my wife said, did you have any luck? I'm in the wellness man. I says, Rose, that is the way that God said that. He says, move to Ravenna. There you will meet a well-dressed man. Not find him. Thursday was the second day. I stopped at different spots and moved in different places. In the afternoon, I went into a hat store and bought a dirty hat the same as Jimmy Walker, the mayor of New York City wore. I thought I'd be presentable when I meet the well-dressed man. Friday was the third day. Nothing happened. Saturday the 4th, Sunday the 5th, Monday the 6th, Tuesday the 7th, Wednesday the 8th, Thursday the 9th, Friday the 10th, and Saturday the 11th. Nothing happened. God, what are you doing to me? I followed your instructions for 11 days. I didn't even take time to go ahead and look for a bootlegger only to meet the well-dressed man. 
My three gallons of blackberry wine are going. I'm down to the bottom of the second gallon of whiskey, and I haven't met the well-dressed man. What are you doing to me, God? I was disgusted on that loving day. The next day was Sunday. I thought I had a little more whiskey in the second gallon. I knew the wine was all gone, and that was it. God, what are you torturing me for? I followed your instructions. I was so sick and shaky, my eyes were bloodshot, and I said, God, forgive me, I'm too sick and too shaky to go ahead and look for the meat. Beat the well-dressed man today, but please, Lord, help me find a bootlegger or I'm going to die. I was afraid to drive my Model T forward, so I walked. As I walked, I prayed, God, help me find a bootlegger or I'm going to die. My head was ready to fall off of my shoulders, I shook off. Finally, I stopped and I looked up in the sky and I said, Thank you, Lord. Thank you. You are good to me after all. I seen a drunken man that Sunday morning coming towards me at 9.30. I stopped this drunken man and I showed him my shaky hands. I said, Mister, I'm not a revenue agent. I'm an alcoholic. Will you please help me find a bootlegger? That man was drunk. And he was so kind, he took me by the arm. He said, Sure, I'll take you to a bootlegger. We walked back about a block from the direction he came. And I said, he can't be the well-dressed man. He's just an ordinary dressed man. He took me through a back end of a two-story brick building, introduced me to Sam, the bootlegger. He said, Sam, this is a friend of mine. He wants something to drink. The pint and the pitcher of wine. I said, yes. We sat down at one of those 30 by 30 tables, one side against the wall. And the pitcher of wine and the final whiskey come. I said, fill the glasses. I'm too shaky. So he filled himself a glass, one ounce glass of whiskey and a half a glass of wine. I said, pour my whiskey in this wine glass. He poured about over a half a glass of whiskey, and I downed that. But I didn't forget what I prayed for. I said, thank you, Lord. Thank you for showing me this man to bring me to a bootlegger. I would have died. He drank a shot of liquor, washed it with wine. He says, I was on my way home when I met you, and he says, thanks for the drink. I hope to see you again. He walked out. I finished the rest of the pint, ordered another pint, had a couple of drinks out of that. My shake calmed down. They was calmed down. That seat is empty now. This man just walked away from that seat. I'm sitting right across on it. And the door opened up and a nicest well-dressed man walked in and said to Sam, get me a pint and a pitcher of wine. That well-dressed man came over to my table and said, can you use some company? Mr. Could I use some company? Please sit down and have a drink. I poured him out a drink in his one-ounce glass, but he was as shaky as I was. I said, you need a stiff drink. So I poured him out about three-quarters of a glass of whiskey in his wine glass, and he downed that, and it was like only five minutes ago what he said. Did I need that this morning? Did I need that this morning? I said, isn't there somebody on this God's earth can help people like you and I with an alcoholic problem? He reached over his hand, by the way, my name is Smith. I figured when in the days 1929, who gave a right name in the bootlegging joint or checked in the motel or hotel? You're always checking under an alias name. I figured he's giving me an alias name. I said, Smitty, glad to meet you. My name is Johnson. <laughs> I said, isn't there somebody on this God's earth can help people like you and I? Johnson, they tried everything for hundreds and hundreds of years and they haven't found a solution for it yet. Smitty, I'm going to find a solution if it's going to kill me because if I don't, this booze is going to kill me anyway. I hope you do find a solution, Johnson. His hands was calming down. He was calming down from the shakes that he had. And I said, Smitty, I'm going to tell you something and I want you to listen to every word I tell you. Johnson, I'm listening. And I told Schmitty just what I told you. How I walked through the woods and two on bark and leaves and was thinking I'd find a chemical to go ahead and stop the craving of alcohol. How I went to the priest and the priest told me to pray. 
I prayed for five years and five days and a vision of God appeared and the voice of God said, take your family and move to a van, Ohio. There you will meet a well-dressed man. Maybe I looked for 11 days for that to meet that well-dressed man. This morning is the 12th day on a Sunday and I said, God forgive me, I'm too sick and too shaky to look for the well-dressed man. And here you come in to tell Sam you want a pitcher of wine and a pint of whiskey. And you came over to my table and asked me if I could use some company. You are the well-dressed man. And he looked at me and he said, Johnson, he says, this is very, very, very interesting. Many, my wife will be so glad that I finally located the well-dressed man when you come over to the house and meet the family. Not this Sunday, Johnson, but I promise to be over some other Sunday. Sam is getting my supply ready and I'll be over some other Sunday. Sam, get me a pipe to take out. I can't wait till I get home and tell the wife that I finally located the well-dressed man. And I even took short tacks through the fields, getting down on Wall Street in Ravana. When I got home and told the wife, well, it finally happened. I located the well-dressed man. Why didn't you ask him to come over? I did. But he promised to be over some other Sunday. So I was so happy that I located the well-dressed man who went over to the Branson Play of Piano and I started playing and singing. Highways are happy days when they lead the way to home. That night I was back to the bootlegger. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Looking for Schmitty, I didn't see him, and I said to Sam, I said, has Schmitty been around this week? Oh, he don't come around during the week, only on Sunday morning. So the next day was Sunday, and Schmitty was already there, and he put his arms around me. Johnson, I thought about you all week, and what you told me is something so interesting. Johnson, I never want to lose you. I never want to lose you. Schmitty, I don't want to lose you either. You're my well-dressed man that God told me about. So, Smitty, can you make it down to the house and meet the family today? No, Sam has got my supply ready to go ahead and take. And he says, I can't go ahead and make it today, but I'll promise to be over some other Sunday. Now, that's two Sundays that I met Smitty. I know him by the name of Smith. He knows me by the name of Johnson. So he went with his supply, and I got my supply, and I went home. I was back down to the bootlegger that Sunday night, Monday and Tuesday night. Now that's two Sundays and two nights later. I'm at the bootlegging table set where I met Schmitty. Two Sundays and two nights previous. And I was so relaxed that I finally located a well-dressed man and what God said was true that I would locate a well-dressed man. So now we're going to change the scene from this bootlegger table just like we changed the scene before. To change the scene, I'm going to tell you what happened two and a half months previous to that. And then we're coming back to the bootlegging table. Two and a half months previous to that, I came home very drunk. And I got up that morning, shaky as I always was. And I always tried to manage to have a pint for I open in the morning, but I looked through the cold closet and fell all the clothes and there's no pint. I laid on the bed and I said, I know that I had a pint in there. I tried it again, tried all the clothes, nothing there. There it is again. Lay down the bed. God, you've got to help. You've got to help me get something to drink. I'm going to die in this bed if you don't help me, God. I called the wife, and I said, Rose, you see, the way I came home drunk last night, and I said, well, I'm coming home. I fell down, and I hurt my back. You got me rubbing alcohol to rub my back. No, I haven't. She wasn't an alcoholic. You didn't understand an alcoholic. But I'll go and get some. She went and got a bottle of rubbing alcohol. I turned around and she rubbed my back. And you never believe how anxious I was for her to go ahead and stop rubbing my back. I had to tell her, well, that feels better. That's enough. Put the bottle of rubbing alcohol on the nightstand. I said, when you go out, get me a pitcher of water in the glass. 
So you got a pitcher of water in the glass, and when you go out, close the bedroom door. You close the bedroom door. As soon as that bedroom door was closed, I grabbed that pitcher of water, and I filled a half a glass of water and the rest of the rubbing alcohol, and I down that as fast as I could and swallowed hard. So I wouldn't heave it up, and I laid on a bed for five minutes, and I could feel my hands palming down, and I got up again and filled another half a glass of water and the rest of the rubbing alcohol, and I said, God, you've got to help me get this down here. I said, I'm too shaky, You have to help me, God. I drank the second glass of rubbing alcohol, and I started putting on my trousers and socks and shoes and shirts, and I walked out in the kitchen, and my wife looked at me, and she says, Are you up already? That you will never believe in your life how much that rubbing alcohol helps you. You will never believe in your life. She sent her what she rubbed on my back, and I'm talking about the two glasses that I drank internally with crossbones on there, poison used externally only. I went to the bootlegger. And I got a pint of whiskey and a fourth bottle of homebrew. He sat in there calming my face down. And that's when I said to him, God, please help me to never go through this torture as long as I live. If I have to drink rubbing alcohol to stop the shit. I'm asking you, God, to please help me never to go through this torture again. Now we're coming back to the bootlegger where I met Smitty. Two Sundays and two nights, two days per year. I'm sitting down there, and I said, Sam, get me a gallon of whiskey and a pint to take out. He got a gallon of whiskey and a pint, and went home and got a shovel, and I dug a hole, 10 by 14. And I put that gallon in the hole and the board over top of it, and I stood there and looked up in the sky. God, I need your help. Please, God, help me. Never to touch that gallon of whiskey in that hole unless I'm too sick and too shaky to make it to the bootleg. Please help me, God. That two Sundays and two days later, I was down to the bootlegger on a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, the third Sunday, Smitty will be there. I'll be glad to go ahead and see my well-dressed man. Smitty was already outside, and he put his arms around me, just like Clarence always does. He thought, I just got to so glad to meet him, son. And he says, Johnson, he says, I'm so glad. He says, I was talking to some of my friends about what you've done and what you said. He says, it's very, very interesting. Let's go in and get something to drink. Oh, Johnson, I waited here about a half hour. Something happened to Sam. He's not here yet. He's tired of the net. He broke down. And we talked another ten minutes. And Smitty showed me his hands. He says, Johnson, if you don't come pretty soon, I'm going to throw a Jerry. Smitty, for God's sake, told everything. I helped him get in my model C4. And he says, where are you going? I says, I got a gallon of whiskey at the house. You're sure you got a gallon? I just put it there Tuesday night. Well, I hope it's there. Don't worry, it's there. I went over there and took the board off, took the gallon out, took the cork off, and I held it. It was too shaky. I held it for him, took a big drink, and stopped for a draft, and took another and the third and the fourth drink. He wanted more. Johnson, you're a lifesaver. You're a lifesaver. And I put the cork on the put back in the hole. Johnson, aren't you going to take a drink? I can't drink. So I put the gallon in the hole on the board over top of it, and he says, well, why can't you take a drink? Smitty, when I put that gallon in the hole Tuesday night, I looked up in the sky and I asked God to guide me and protect me not to touch a drop of that whiskey in that hole down there unless I'm too sick and too shaky to make it to the bootlegger. And Smitty, I'm not too sick and too shaky. I could make it to the bootlegger. And Smitty says, I don't blame you for keeping your promise. While you're here, Smitty, come on in meet the wife. I put him inside. I said, Smitty, this is my wife home. Rose, this is Smitty, the well-dressed man I told you about. Now, why did these things come out that way? My wife, she didn't say my husband. She didn't say Mr. Andy. She said, my husband. 
Can you out pray for five years and the five days and the vision of God appears and the voice of God said, Take your family, move to Ravan, Ohio, there you will meet a well dressed man. Then he tell you how he looked for eleven days for the well dressed man. And on the twelfth day at the bootlegger, you came over to his table and asked him if he could use some company. And he said that you are the well dressed man. Did he show you the blisters on his knees for playing for five years and five days? Yes, he did. And it's all very, very, very interesting. We talked another ten minutes. And Smitty didn't say Mr. Johnson. My wife didn't even know I introduced myself under alias name as Johnson. Then he said, let's go over maybe Sam was there. We went down to the bootleggers and Sam was there and he apologized. His car broke down. They couldn't open up on time. So we each ordered the pitcher of wine and the pint and said in the same seats at the same table. Drinking. We just calmed down. I said we calmed down. We didn't have the stakes. And the door opened up. And the big husky man about 300 pounds walked in and said to Sam, get me a pint to take out. I'm in a hurry. That big husky man came over to the back of Smitty, put his hand on Smitty's shoulder and patted him and said, Doc, how are you? Smitty looked around to see it was, and he said, Harry, pretty good. How have you been? We've been hauling a lot of sand from the picture of Anna. We've been pretty busy. The bootlegger brought his final whiskey, put it in his coat pocket, and put his hand back on Smitty's shoulder, and he patted it and said, Doc, take care of yourself. I'll see you again. And he walked out. I said, Smitty, after that man just walked out, call you Doc. He doesn't tell What's that? Your nickname? I'm Dr. Bob Sessomac. There you are, folks. The vision of God appears. Move to Ravana, you will meet a well-dressed man. Four and a half billion people on this earth. And here it's Dr. Bob. Now, I said, when we introduced ourselves three Sundays ago, I thought you'd give me an alias name, so I'd give you a name as Johnson. My name is not Johnson. My name is Ed Andrews. So we introduced ourselves to Papa Russell. Now we'll talk. We talked and talked. What could we do to help an alcoholic? Now you were Dr. They tried for hundreds and hundreds of years to go ahead and help an alcoholic. They haven't found a solution for it yet. And we talked about it. We talked about it. I wrote a seven page letter and I give it to Smitty to sign, to read and sign. Now, why did I do that? You'll see as I go along with my lead, why did I do those things? But there was something telling me to do it. When Smitty was reading the letter, he said, he didn't call me Johnson anymore. He had three names, Ed, Eddie, or Andy. He says, Eddie, he says, if somebody reads this letter now, they'll put us both in a straight jacket. And I said, why? He said, well, the way you got it written, he says, there'll be men walking on a moon. And I said, well, that's the way it was. The men did walk on the moon. And the second item was where I mentioned that there'll be millions and millions and millions of men and women that I found a solution for alcoholics by the year of 2032. This is nowhere near 2032, and there's already six and a half million in AA. And the third article was that in 2014, there'll be millions and millions of men and women that'll die from bombs. 2014 is coming. We're already afraid of them bombs today, and 2014 isn't here yet. Now we'll talk every Sunday. Eddie would come down to the house many times, and one Sunday he came over and he said, Eddie, read this letter. Somebody screamed at me at the city hospital in Akron that I had an alcoholic problem. So I read the letter with some Dr. Michael Miller in Cleveland. He was studying alcoholics with alcoholics. And he wanted Dr. Bob to come to Akron, Cleveland. He says, Ed, I don't want to go. You take the letter and see what it's all about. I said, Cleveland, I think. So busy with traffic. They didn't have highways and byways at that time like you have now. I said, I wouldn't drive a car up there. I'll take the inner, inner of the man from Akron to Ravana. 
to a damaged Cleveland. So that Monday I took the interview. And I didn't know Cleveland too well. So I asked the conductor, where do I get off for this address? He said, get off at 9th and Pastor Cassidy. I get off at 9th and Pastor at 10.15 in the morning. That's Monday morning. I don't see Dr. Michael Miller until 4.30 in the afternoon. I got plenty of time, so I walk one block south. Larry Smith remembers that one block out. There's a four-story elevation iron building that crosses straight to the Erie Street Cemetery. The Erie Street Cemetery. The sign read Eagle Avenue. I didn't know what Eagle Avenue was. Against the elevation iron building, two men there, three men there with bottles drinking. I walked down Eagle Avenue about every other doorway. There's a couple of men with bottles drinking. When I got to Woodland Avenue, I said to a man sitting down, What's all those men down there drinking? Don't the police bother them? He says, ah, they're all alcoholics. They don't bother nobody in the street. Don't bother them. I says, is there a bootlegger around here? Yeah, there's a bootlegger right there. Come on, I'll buy you a drink. And then I says, give us two drinks. Ten cents in a day. Ten cents? That's cheap. They had a galvanized washtub and a dipper. They'd go ahead and get that out. I don't think he's risky. He was alive and this was water. So I laid down another dime. And got two more drinks. He said, how much a bottle? He said, 15 cents a half a pint, 25 cents a pint. Give me two pints. So I gave this new friend of mine a pint. And I had the other pint in my pocket. And I asked him, where's the rate from there? This is 1930, September of 1930. He says, walk past the public square, back of the courthouse, and you can't miss it. I walked down the hill, and I see hundreds and hundreds of men working down there in touchstone with concrete like ants from an anthill. And now standing here, I said, what are they building down there? Is they're building a municipal stadium for the Cleveland Indians to play ball in. And that was nothing but water in through there in the dump. And they was hauling this concrete to go ahead and fill that in for the municipal stadium. I had plenty of time, and it was so interesting to watch them work. And finally, about 1.30 in the afternoon, and my bottle was empty, and I was getting hungry, and I got a note. And I wrote this. God help us alcoholics to find a solution for our alcoholic problem. Edward I. Randy, 223 Wall Street, Ravana, Ohio, 1900, September 1930. When they was unloading the load of that concrete with the foundation of the municipal stadium, I tossed the bottle in there. And I said, hell, we'll never find that bottle in a thousand years. Friends, you will be surprised what that bottle is that since that time. That bottle can walk or talk. And that bottle is doing more... 12-step work in anybody in AA. That bottle has saved in that sonic concrete of the foundation of the municipal stadium. That bottle has saved thousands and thousands of men and women from taking a drink. And that bottle can't walk or talk. And that's what that bottle done in 1930. I didn't mention the bottle until 10 years later. And that's when I read, read the first meeting in action. That's when I mentioned the bottle in the foundation of the municipal stadium. And then people like Clarence Snyder was getting... People in AA opened up groups. Warren Chisholm opened the group. The stadium was opened up on July the 3rd, 1931. The Cleveland Indians were playing there. There was different doings at the stadium. And there were people to go ahead and see the ball game and other doings. And he'd bring whiskey bottles along there with him. At that time, men and women enjoyed an AA. They'd hear my story and go ahead and tell them about the bottle in the foundation of the municipal stadium. They're in AA going to see some doings, a baseball game at the stadium. The friends would bring some bottles along, drinking it. It wasn't AA, but it passes to the one man and woman that's in AA. And they would think about the bottle that I mentioned in the foundation of the municipal stadium. Said, no thanks, I don't want anything to do. That bottle is doing false efforts, and it's solid in 10,000 tons of concrete in a municipal stadium. 
At 4.30, I seen Dr. Michael Miller. He introduced me to a man, that just, or a man, I figured. But the next day, I found out, where in sight of no stupid man there, the man was Mark Tanner. Tanner's from one of the wealthiest families in the state of Ohio, they're not millionaires, they're billionaires. Dr. Michael Miller introduced me to him and told us what he wanted to do, and I said, well, Dr. Bob didn't come over here, so I took his place. So he wants to know what this is all about, and he told us that he's going to go ahead and find a way and a place to go ahead and help alcoholics. Well, at that time, there was a Hoover dump down there with the lake and the coast out. Now it's the first airport. They filled all that in. And we were going ahead and experimenting with alcoholics. The city gave us a place in Warrensville Workhouse, and we were experimenting with them. We'd need more alcoholics. We'd call the police station. We'd go down the Hoover dump and go ahead and get a load of alcoholics. And we were saving them guys there. The city... First, he said, the agent called me in the office and he said, Andy, he says, what the hell are you doing to the city of Cleveland? I said, I'm not doing nothing. Why? What do you want to do? Bankrupt the city? Look at all the oysters. You're buying oysters in five-gallon cans, hundreds and hundreds of pounds of oil. What the hell are you doing with all that? I said, we're seeing this with alcoholics. The lining is all burned down from booze. And we've got to feed them oyster stew in order to go ahead and get them back filled up again. So he let me go ahead and do it. Now, in the meantime, I was given all this information to Dr. Bob. Every Sunday, I'd go ahead and see Dr. Bob. And then Dr. Bob told me that he finally located the, what they call the Oxford Group in Akron, Ohio. He located the Oxford Group, and by that time, we had, and he met Bill Wilson, Bill Wilson, and Clarence Snyder, and told to the Oxford Group. Oxford Group of Sinners, that's where we learned where the sinners were. We've done a lot of experience from the sinners. We had our program completed. And Mark Hanna, they also owned the newspapers down there. In fact, the three biggest part of the downtown district of Cleveland, they were wealthy people. So Mark Hanna was afforded up the newspaper reporters to go ahead and write a story that we finally found a solution for alcoholism. It was published in the Plain Dealer and the News and the Press, and finally, the medical board checked in. We want what you got. Dr. Michael Willis is not the dealer. You make a racket out of it, and doctors will get rich. This is for alcoholics. We wouldn't give it to them. So finally, the government stepped in and said, as long as you boys are interested in alcoholism, they offered Dr. Michael Miller some flip charge of Lexington, Kentucky, alcoholics and dope things and all that. And they offered Mark Hanna and I the assignment to go to Cordoba, the Republic of Argentina, to study alcoholism over there. Mark Hanna says, I already got our assignment as a... Vice President of the Manufacturing Traders and Trust Company, a banking institution in Buffalo, New York. So I went to South America. While I was in South America studying alcoholism, Dr. Bob was writing to me, and I told Dr. Bob that I was coming back, flying back to South America on the 23rd day of October, 1939. And Dr. Bob says, Andy, will you go ahead and come back? Call me. It's very important. Call me at this number. I called him on the 23rd of October, and he says, Come over to Akron, meet me at the 40th Hotel. I want you to meet a friend of mine. And that's on the 24th day of October, 1939, when he introduced me to Bill Wilson. And he says, Andy, he says, you've got a lot of experience with alcoholics. With Dr. Michael Miller in South America in Cordoba. We need a man like you to help us with this AA program. We need a man like you. I says, Dr. Bob. You need a man like me to help you with the AA program. You're asking me for help. Dr. Bob, do you remember 10 years ago, 1929, what I told you at the bootlegger and shag bootlegger joint? 
The position of God appeared in the voice of God said, Take your family hoops to the van and you'll meet a well-dressed man and you as the well-dressed man. Now you're asking me to help you? Pastor Bob, I'll do anything for you. I'll do anything. But well, we need more people in here. Hey, how can we do it? With the experience I have with Dr. Michael Miller and the police force down here, I'll ask the man if I can open the office in the Central Police Station the 21st and Canaan and have the goodness to serve alcoholics over to my office. He referred alcoholics. I put in thousands and thousands, thousands of alcoholics. Dr. Bob said, you've done so well. How about going in through the West and open some of the groups? I went through California, Colorado, New Mexico, and Arizona. I started a program in California. Judge Kyle G. of the Superior Court was the one that was responsible and cooperated with me. Last year when I had an appointment with the 19 judges in Los Angeles, I thanked him for the cooperation of Alcoholics Anonymous for what they've done. And if any report since I originally idea in California, they said that I had to have that through the whole United States. I'm only one man. I can't do all of that. I'm doing all I can. But they give me a report that since that time they put in 79,000 women and women in their age. Now, there's other states that I originated ideas for alcoholics and all this. But I'm going to tell you one, a Phoenix, Arizona. Phoenix, Arizona. I got in Phoenix, Arizona on, in the afternoon at 2.30. Where am I going to go to open up a group down there? Going to go to a judge, a priest, salvation army, or where? But I see, now there's the guy again. He's the one that's doing it. Not me, I wanted to do it. I only wanted, I came to rescue him. I only wanted a hamburger and a cup of coffee. When I went in that restaurant, there was 36 seats empty against the counter. 36 seats. I took about the middle section. While I was eating the hamburger, drinking coffee, with all the seats was empty, a drunk came over and sat right alongside of me on my left side. A drunk. And the waitress come over with the menu and he says, no, just give me the same thing he's got. He went over and got a hamburger and a cup of coffee and he started a conversation. And he says, boy, I'm afraid to go home. I said, what's the matter? You're wasting a reach hell because you drink. Oh, no, I'm caught. So when I got out of the car, my name is Mr. Randy. I came from Cleveland, Ohio to go ahead and open up an AA group for people that got an alcoholic problem. I just met your son about 20 minutes ago. Well, that's clear of that. And I told him what AA was and what it can do to help an alcoholic. He invited me and I stayed overnight. So the father said that he would do everything to go ahead and help me out. And that's where we opened up the first group and I sponsored the first band in Phoenix, Arizona. There is an example. Now when I led the first meeting in Akron in 1940, Dr. Bob and I went over to the Tesla's Donut Shop that Clarence Snyder was in many and many a time on Market Street. And I told the waitress, get me two dozen coconut donuts to take out. So from there we went on, she says, I'll put the tray right into the bag. And you can take it that way, a plastic tray. Just a plastic tray. We went over to Dr. Bob's house, and we had Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson and I had two donuts apiece and coffee. And Dr. Bob then said, let the three of us get down on our knees and pray to God to help us with this AA program. We got down on our knees, and we prayed. Did God help us with the AA program? Look at here. And all over the world, people in AA, he sure did help us. Dr. Bob says, Ed, you like coconut donuts, I'll put the rest of the donuts in the tray right in the bag and you can take it home. We took it home, a few days later we ate the donuts. I got the plastic tray, 1940. What am I going to do with it? Not worth 20 cents. I'm going to keep it. I kept it. I have that plastic tray in my museum today. 
Then what gold and whole building center at Santa Juan, hanging not too far away from Francis Snyder picture on the museum wall. With the inscription on there, Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson had in the eight poker donuts out of this trade at Dr. Bob's house in 1940. Now there's in the museum. I was offered at that time, I wouldn't go ahead and give 20 cents for the trade. Four months ago, I was offered $2,500 for it, and I wouldn't sell it. I wouldn't sell it because they wanted for souvenirs from Dr. Bob. And I told Sue Windows down there, Sue Windows, Clarence Snyder knows. And I'll never forget the time that Dr. Bob said, let the three of us get down on the knees and pray to God to help us with the AA program. And from that day on, it's in my mind, I want to go ahead and buy that house and keep that as a souvenir with Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson and I prayed and asking God for help. Now, those are the things of AA, how it's done. What would AA be today? All of you have read of the Mayflower, landed at Plymouth Rock. But the official reading of that is, it landed at Cape Cod first, and then it continued to Plymouth Rock. And that's the way it was with AA. It started in Akron. There is the man, Clarence Snyder, that took it out of Akron. He was a good navigator. Brought it out of Akron in the Cleveland Heights to Dr. Borges. Opened that group there, and that's where AA started. In other cities, because of Clarence Snyder, there's the man that's responsible for it. But A is today. He is the man that worked hard. He was insulted. He was kicked around and everything. But what did he do? He fought. He fought, and that's what we have today. The miracles of AA, when they, I had the office of the Central Police Station, two police officers brought a man over, and I said, give me the report. I'll take him in front of the judge later on. These are some of the miracles of AA. I looked at the chart, and I said, well, you don't have no address down here. What's your address? I don't have any. Well, what do you say? So I sleep in the park or on the, in the doorways wherever I can. And I said, well, you've got an alcoholic problem. You've been arrested before for drinking. He says, and they told me the story that he came from a millionaire family in Buffalo, New York. Every time he'd get drunk, the newspapers would have a big write-up and ruining the reputation of the family. And the family got tired and says, why the hell don't you go ahead out of the state and go ahead and drink all you want? And if you're sober for a year, come on back home. So that's what I've done. I had money from the beginning, living in motels and hotels and drinking good whiskey. And he said, my money ran out, so now I'm panhandling, sleeping in parks and in doorways. Do you want to stop drinking? I'd do anything to stop drinking. So I took him to Vern Bennett's child. <clears throat> Snyder, Clarence Snyder knows that Vern Bennett was on 8023 Detroit Avenue. Took him to Vern Bender. He didn't have any money that I had authority and influence. Put this man in for five days. When he was discharged, I had a job for him at the Cleveland Diesel. I had a room for him, gave him some money, and took him to the AA meeting. Now understand, this is a miracle. Introduce him to fellas at the AA meetings tonight. Well, here's a man that needs AA. He wants to stop drinking. Take him to a different group. That man went to a meeting for one year and three days without missing a day's meeting. After one year and three days, he come up to me and he said, Mr. Andy, I told you the story that my folks said if I'm sober for a year, I could come back home. How am I going to prove to them that I was sober for a year? Don't worry, I'll fix that. So I went into a drugstore and got a roll of base paper and sent it to about 12 meeting places with thousands of names on there. And I wrote a letter and sent that to his mother in Buffalo, New York, and I said, all these names on this call will verify that your son was sober for one year and three days, and he's coming back home to Buffalo. He went back home. Now, he was in Buffalo four years and 
Six years and four days. Six years and four days, one year and three days in Cleveland. At seven years and seven days, he was sober enough having a drink. One morning, he got up and he told his brothers and, and his wife, or his brothers and his mother and father was dead. He said, you know, something happened to me. Something happened to me that I'm going to start drinking again. God Almighty, help me. I don't never want to start drinking again. A well-educated family, a millionaire family, his brother says, well, why don't you call the airlines, make reservations, and go to that hospital, and Mr. Andy had you hospitalized, maybe that'll change your mind. That's a good idea. He came to 8023 Detroit, rang the doorbell, and a nurse come out, and she says, can I help you? I want to check in for five days. Have you been drinking? I haven't had a drink for seven years and seven days, but Mr. Andy had me hospitalized down here seven years and seven days ago. And I'm afraid that I'm going to go ahead and start drinking. And my folks suggested I come over here and check in for five days. Maybe that'll change my mind. So they invited them. He was a guest there. He didn't need no medication. They didn't have to put him to bed at nine o'clock with the rest of the patients. They didn't have to go ahead and take his lighter and cigarettes away or matches. He was a guest there. He stayed till 11 o'clock at night talking with Mr. and Mrs. Bender and decided that he would go to bed. Went to bed at 12.30 in the morning, he heard a commotion, he put his trousers on in the bathroom, got his lighter and cigarettes, walked in the hallway down there, and he seen two police officers and a nurse and a doctor kneeling down examining a man on a stretcher. When Wallace ran there with the cigarette in his mouth, he heard the doctor pronounce the man on the stretcher dead. So the doctor said to the two police officers, let's go in the kitchen and get a cup of coffee while the nurse makes out a report. While he was in the kitchen, Wallace ran and looked at the man on the stretcher, and he yelled out to the nurse, he says, Nurse, that man isn't dead. I just seen him move his eye. Now, folks, if that man was under medication, you know what would happen. The girls would take him by the eye and say, you're seeing him. You better go to your room. In the first place, he wouldn't be allowed in the lobby. So they called for the doctor and the police, and the two police picked him up, put him on the bed, and the doctor gave him some medication. 7.30 in the morning, that man was eating breakfast with the rest of the patients. That's a miracle. Waller went over to the phone, made reservations, go back to Buffalo, New York. He stayed one day. I know now I won't take another trip. That's a miracle. I'm going to tell you one about the mayor of Dayton, Ohio. It's another miracle. The mayor of Dayton, Ohio asked me to come to Dayton for two weeks to go ahead and talk to the judges, probation office, police, and prosecutors, doctors and nurses, and sheriffs, to tell them what AA is, what it can do to help an alcoholic. I spent two weeks there. I thought I'd done my duty. But Dayton, Ohio is coming back when I'm on a train going through the state of Illinois at 125 miles an hour, and Dayton will come back there. When I got back to my office, there was a letter down there from Ray Harrison, the prosecutor of Des Moines, Iowa, asking me to go ahead and be a speaker at the Midwest Conference in Des Moines, Iowa, with Jerry Wilson. I called him up from Hotel Cleveland, and I told him that I would accept. A week later, Bill Wilson called me from New York. That's when he went back to New York, and he said, I heard you're going to be a speaker with you at the Midwest Conference. And he said, I'll make sure of Hotel Cleveland will both fly over. I agreed to that. Four days later, I got a call from the central office in Chicago asking me to go ahead as long as I'm going to Des Moines, Iowa, if I wouldn't go ahead and start out a day sooner and lead a meeting in Chicago. I agreed to that. I called Bill Wilson back in New York, and I said, I plan to change on this year in Des Moines, Iowa. I led the meeting in Chicago. This is another miracle. Why do these things happen? God Almighty is guiding all these moves. He's making all these moves. I left the meeting in Chicago, went to the airport to get my plane, and I missed the plane. How could I miss that plane? But whenever that tower graded and I fell to range of things, he's going to have it his way, not my way. I went to the ticket office tonight, and I missed the plane. What would you suggest I do? 
And he looks at the card and says, Get a cab, go to the South Street Station, and there's a Rock Island Rocket leaves there to get you in Des Moines, Iowa on time. Went to the Rock Island Rocket Station, ticket for Des Moines, what train, the next train leaving. Sorry, this is a reservation train, there isn't a vacant seat on there. What would you suggest I do? Come back in about an hour, if there's any cancellations, I'll go ahead and save you a seat. An hour later, I come back, and any cancellations, no cancellations. Well, I'm Mr. Andy from Cleveland. I'm going to be a speaker on Epiphonics Anonymous in Des Moines, Iowa. What did you say? I'm going to be a speaker at the Midwest Conference on Alcoholics Anonymous. He put his hand on my shoulder like the doctor. Like the priest did in Lakeman, Ohio, and patted it and said, Say, you boys are doing a wonderful, wonderful job. Wait till I see Frank Leahy and I'll see what I can do. I'll be back in ten minutes. Ten minutes later, he come back, put his hand back on my shoulder, Mr. Andy. I talked to Frank Leahy and told him the situation you're in. He said it was all right to ride in the private coaches with the Notre Dame football players. I thought it was luck. I thought that was luck, but that wasn't luck. That's the way the power of traders myself arranged it. He put me on the train and introduced me to Frank Leahy and some of the football players, and the train is going out of out of Chicago through the state of Illinois at 125 miles an hour when a 245-pound football player come up and introduced himself and said, Are you going on business? Why would a question like that come up if it wasn't for God to go ahead and make that possible? No, I'm not going on business. I'm going to be a speaker at the Midwest Conference on Alcoholic Phenomenon. Oh, say, maybe you can help me. I looked at him. I said, hell, he didn't have a drink in all his life. And I said, what could I do for you? He said, my uncle is putting me through college, and I'm afraid he's going to die from drinking before I finish college. You'd think as he did him in AA. I'll do all I can. I got my address book. What's your uncle's name? Give me the name. What's the address? The address is what city? Dayton, Ohio. There comes Dayton. I said, I just spent two weeks in Dayton. I met a lot of nice people down there. And I said, I'll call them up when I get to my hotel in Des Moines, Iowa, and tell them what you said. And we'll do all we can to get your uncle in AA. So I called them. They said, give me your hotel name and your telephone number. We'll call you back in a couple of days. Two days later, they called me and they said they went over to the football player's uncle's house. And they rang the doorbell and nobody come out. They rang the second time and they smelled gas at the door. They smelled gas and finally nobody come out the door. So they went to the bay window after smelling the gas and seen a man laying on the floor. They broke the window, opened up the, closed the gas, gas gas, opened up the door, called the ambulance, rushed in the hospital. Two days later, they went over there to go ahead and see him and told him how they happened to be there. Because the nephew from Notre Dame asked him to come over to get him an AA. He was afraid that he was going to die from drinking. That man joined AA. Not over four months ago, he led a meeting in Columbus, Ohio. He's old now, but he joined AA from that day on. That's what you call a miracle. A miracle. Many of you try to go ahead and sponsor somebody at some time. And you know what they said. I'm not an alcoholic. I don't need it. It's only for somebody else. I'm not an alcoholic. But that's the way it was with a man that I tried to censor. <coughs> Eddie Harrison's name, a wonderful man, but an alcoholic if there ever was. He was an alcoholic, but he was well-liked by everybody. No matter how drunk he would get, he'd never insult anybody. He'd always say good things about anybody. He'd say good things. And I tried for four years to go ahead and sponsor him, and I failed. And I'm glad that I failed, because if I succeeded, I wouldn't be able to tell you this interesting story about Eddie Harrison. Finally, Eddie Harrison was one of these politicians. He had a sort of a comical stutter on him. Anybody running for judge, prosecutor, county commissioner, or anything, see Eddie Harrison. He's got a lot of friends. He'll help you get elected. They offered him high positions in the city of Cleveland. Oh, on a job? He's an alcoholic. But he's got to have money for booze. He's got to have money for booze. And they will give it to him because he was a good man. 
even though he was an alcoholic. But you've heard of that old saying, that all good things come to an end sooner or later. And that's when this comes, one of the county commissioners says, we're here. Addie Harrison is such a good guy, let's all pitch in, we'll buy him a camping outfit, cooking utensils and groceries near the county truck, and take him about 20 miles out to the county line, he won't be down here to bother us as a day for money. And that's what he does. They set up this tent. Two days after he was there, there was a rain. After the rain, he went over to the creek and watched the water flow. And he seen a dog floating down the creek. He ran up ahead and saved the dog. It was a police dog. Put him into a tent and dried him and fed him. And he had a lot of time to train that dog all summer long. The fall of the earth come along, and he named the dog Rex. Don't forget the dog Rex. The fall of the year come along, the county commissioners and the politicians said, well, we can't leave that man out there. It's getting cold. We better send the county truck and take him down to his mother at Fulton Road in Walton Avenue. And that's what he does. In the spring of the year, back out to the county line. And that fall of the year is when they open up wine stores with different barrels of wine, different varieties, and a spigot in a drip pan under the spigot. There's four inches of snow on the ground. Addie Harrison went over with a, his dog Rex to get a gallon of wine. And business is slow, just the new wine store, people didn't know about it. And he was talking politics with the proprietor of the wine store. Talking for about an hour, when he was getting ready to go, he hollered out to his dog laying down, Rex! And the dog just barely moved his leg. Rex! And the dog just barely moved his leg. He heard his master, but he couldn't get out. Addie Harrison ran over to go ahead and pick the dog up on the seat, and the dog fell back down again, and the proprietor... Says, you know, come to think of it, while we were talking politics, the thing dogs over two of the drip hands, and he was licking that wine, he got drunk. Addie Harrison carrying a 45-pound dog got down the wine through four inches of snow from West 25th Street to Fulton Road. <laughs> he laid the dog down, put a blanket over him, and got up in the morning, and the dog was running around, and Addie Harrison was happy about it. That night, Addie Harrison was going to the wine store with his dog Rex to get another gallon of wine, and just as he turned into that wine store, that dog grabbed him by the leg. And that dog pulled him and pulled him and pulled him all the way to the curb of West 25th Street. And he held him there. He wouldn't let go. Abby Harrison holding the gallon, the gallon of wine. They looked up in the sky and he says, And God, we're supposed to be human? That dog has got more brains than what we got. He was in that white store last night. He got sick and drunk and he doesn't want to go back in there. And he doesn't want his master to go back in So Eddie said, let's go over and see Eddie, and they would go ahead and join AA. He dropped the empty gallon in the container of West 25th and Walton Avenue, come over to the house about 7.30 at night. I said, come on in there with his dog Rex. What can I do for you? I want to join AA. It's about time. I tried to get you for four years. So I filled out the card. I said, well, it's too late to take you to a meeting today. And I got to fly to Pittsburgh to leave the meeting tomorrow, so I'll go ahead and give you this card. You take it to 179 Lorraine Avenue to the Banneker Hall and give it to the chairman and tell him I sent you down there. I said, who's going to be your sponsor? Even my dog Rex is my sponsor. <laughs> He's an alcoholic too. So the next day they went down to the Banneker Hall. He went down to the banister hall because I said from the beginning you had a sort of a comical stutter. And in them days we had door tenders at each meeting place where a person smelled some booze or he was drunk they wouldn't put them in an inn. And the door tender says to Addie Harrison, he says, I'm sorry, this is only for alcoholics. And I said Addie Harrison had a sort of a comical stutter. And he says, I'm saying this is for 
alcoholics only and the gold figures keep you stir. And Andy Harrison says, let me tell you something. I'm an alcoholic and and my dog is an alcoholic and he's my sponsor. (laughs) Let's come on, let's go in. They went in and uh, word got around all the groups down there that Eddie Harrison and his dog are an alcoholic and and the dog wrecked his sponsor and they never had no trouble getting in at a meeting like this after that. Now, Bill Wilson and I mentioned about going to Des Moines, Iowa at the Midwest Conference. Bill Wilson came over to my hotel and he asked me to make a promise to him. He says, Andy, you lead a lot of meetings all around through the United States. Will you promise me this? That wherever you lead a meeting, will you please tell the people that if you can say something good about somebody, don't say nothing at all. And that's very true. If you can say something good, don't say anything at all. I was working 15, 16, 17 hours a day. I promised God I'll work hard in AA if you keep me sober. My friends, I got a lot of nice friends. They said, he's going to kill himself working seven days a week, 15, 16 hours a day on my own time. We better send him out and get him a rest. So they made arrangements on the outskirts of the ranch, on the outskirts of Detroit, Michigan, to put me out there for a couple of weeks rest. Tom Tobin, Run Bender, Clarence Snyder knows all of it. They took me out there. We got out of that ranch. Five minutes later, the phone rang. Andy, it's for you. Who the hell knew of way down there on the outskirts of Detroit, Michigan, on the ranch? There was Mrs. Steve Bond from Toledo, Ohio. Called. Mr. Andy, her husband, she says, is in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, on a drunk for five weeks. And he doesn't want nothing to do with nobody, only you. You're the only one he trusts. Will you please, Mr. Andy, fly to Pittsburgh and bring him in the Von Benders at 8023 Detroit? Don't worry, Mrs. Bond, I'll do that. So I told Von Bender, Tom Tobin, and them, I said, well, take me down to the Willow Run Airport. And I said, I gotta stop. Take my luggage back to Cleveland. I'll take my small briefcase, and I know how Steve Bond is drinking for five weeks, so I'd better get a fifth to go ahead and take along with me. I got on the plane, landed in Pittsburgh at 4.45 in the morning, went over to the river, and Mrs. Bond told me that Steve Bond was. And he had three of these now. He wasn't just for the, he was a millionaire. He had oil fields in Oklahoma and Texas, and he owned practically all the fitting station in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He had three of his employees working down there, but they didn't understand alcoholism. So when I got there, Steve Bond was asking for a drink, and his boy got him a cup of water. It was a cup of water. I said, what the hell do you want to do? Kill that man when he wants a drink? He doesn't want water. He wants whiskey. I filled the water out and filled about three quarters of a cup of whiskey and put his head against the wall and poured it down and told the man, I said, get his clothes ready, get him cleaned up and shaved up. I got to get that 705 plane going back to Cleveland. They got him ready on the way to the airport. Planes wasn't flying often as you do. Now airports wasn't as modern then as they are now. So we got down to the airport there's some long seats down there, Steve Bond says, and he please, please give me another drink. I said, see that man walking back and forth is sizing us up down here. He must be a detective. Where did I go over and talk to him? I took my briefcase with the bottle and went over to see the man. I said, that man sitting in a seat down there, I just flew in from the Willow Run Airport in Detroit to go ahead and take him to Cleveland to an AA hospital. And I said, he's an alcoholic, and he's asking me for a drink, and I figured that you look like a detective. I'd better go ahead and talk to you first. 
He showed me his badge. He was a detective. But you go ahead. I know what you boys have to go through. You give him a drink. It's all right. I guess he bound the drink. And they announced that the plane, 705 plane, is ready to load. I put Steve Byron on the window side of the plane and went over to stewardess. Of course, alcohol wasn't allowed on the planes then like it is now. They even serve liquor on planes. Put him on the window side went over to stewardess. And I said, that man sitting in the seat over there, I said, I'm taking him into an alcoholic hospital and i got to give him a drink every now and then. And he told Jerry, well, that's all right as long as you're not drinking. And I said, I'm not drinking. So I got back to the seat and Steve Byron says, Andy, please give me another drink. I give him a drink. He put his head back and he went to sleep. He was relaxed now. He's relaxed. Ten minutes later, the stewardess come up to me and whispered in my ear, and he said, Mr. Andrew, we have to make an emergency landing in Youngstown, Ohio. Well, I wasn't too imprisoned to ask what the landing. I just prayed to God that we made it. We landed in Youngstown, and the doors opened up. They didn't have modern things like they have today. The doors opened up to the play, and then 24 Indians got in the play. Steve Iron was in the five-week bump, and he got his head back and he sleeping. Twenty-four Indians got in the place. From India with these turbans and big beards, you know, and finally the plane got back in high and ice silver sky that morning. We fly about another twenty minutes and Steve Bond woke. And he looked around and he says, Andy, where the hell are you taking me? I said, I'm taking you into Cleveland the Vern Benders. Andy, they don't have people around here like that. I said, Steve, I'm taking them. We just picked them up. We couldn't convince an alcoholic drinking for five weeks that of where I'm taking them. I said, here, have another drink. I don't want any more. <laughs> well, from Pittsburgh, I called Vern Bender and Tom Tobin to meet me at the airport. They met me at the airport, and I said, here's the model, Steve. Go ahead. Now, this is a story just like Mr. Kirk I told you. You people have got clear minds. you got clear minds. you use good judgment. Remember the story about Mr. Kirk, how he died. He only took a drink in the morning, drink at noon, drink at night, but he was an alcoholic. Steve Vaughn, he put him in run damage. Four days later, the doctor from the hospital called me. He says, Ed, will you come over? We'll have a talk with Steve Vaughn. He's been hospitalized so many times. See if we can get that man straightened out. So we put him in a special room, private room, and the doctor said, Steve, You've been hospitalized so many times. If you ever think of taking the spiritual part of the program, and Steve Bond, I'll never forget, had that maroon bathrobe on, and he pulled out a hundred dollar bill out of the bathrobe and shook it in front of the doctor's face, and he says, Doc, I make more damn money in one day than you make in a whole year. This is my spiritual part of the program. This is what I pray for. I said, Steve, you're praying for the wrong thing. You should pray to God first. Pray to God first, then the money will come. He was discharged. Six months later, he died like Mr. Kirk. There's your answer. If a person continues thinking. Thirty-nine and a half years ago, how many people, every one of you, have seen Lawrence Welch on TV? Thirty-nine years and a half ago, I sponsored Lawrence Welch in Hollywood. Look at him on the stage today. He's 82 years old. Look at the way he looks. How young he looks. That's what AA does. AA does that. Now, Jack Bates, and asked this little morning queen for a day. Thirty-eight years ago, I sponsored him in Hollywood when I went over there. Leading me. Thirty-eight years ago, he done wonders in me. St. Crosby, at the Wilshire Boulevard Club in Hollywood, I sponsored Bill Crosby. He was in AA five and a half years. Oh, I got it licked now. I can drink sociably. There it is. You can drink sociably. 
You're an alcoholic. You've got to keep away from that first drink. And that keeps them elected. But then he was sober for seven and a half years. Well, I think I've got it lit now. I ought to be able to drink sober. Seven and a half years. I could drink sober. He started again. What happened? He died. That's the way it is with us. We have to keep away from that first drink. You take what I mentioned about Mark Hanna being the vice president of manufacturing traders and trust company in Buffalo, New York. I was just talking to a man down here a couple hours ago about the problem that he had. I said, it's a hump that you have to go over. Mark Hanna would call me from the bank down there, and he says, Ed, he says, I just got an urge to go ahead and take a drink. Let's talk. We talk for a half hour sometimes, 45 minutes sometimes, maybe an hour. He called me at 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. We talked. Then he finally said, well, I guess the urge is gone. I don't feel like taking a drink. So any of you at any time feel like taking a drink, call one of your friends in AA and tell them that I feel like taking a drink. Will you come over and talk to me? Or talk on the phone. And it's a little hump that you have to go over that little hump. When you go over that hump, you're going to go ahead and be all right. That's the way it is in AA. Clarence Snyder, I've heard so much down there in Cleveland. We miss Clarence Snyder for what he's done in Cleveland down there. He's done so much for thousands and thousands of people. And you people here in Florida should be very happy to have a man like Clarence Snyder down here. Because we miss him up there. He's done so much for all of us. For all of us down there. And if it wasn't for Clarence Snyder, where would A.A. be today? He's the man that fought to go ahead. I was called by the chief of police, Chief Monterey, the chief of the police department. This is the beginning of it, just like Clarence Snyder went through hell to go ahead and fight the wrong to make the rights. The chief of police called me and he says, Ed, I'm sending a police car over to pick you up. I want to see you down here in the police station, in my office. The cruiser came over and picked me up. He says, what the hell's the matter with the chief? He's burned up about something. I don't know. Driving over. What's wrong with you? Ed, you read that mail. I'm tired of reading it. You read the damn mail. He says, I'm going out of here and you go ahead and read the mail. I read the mail. That was the beginning of AA, just like the tortures and the criticism that Frank Snyder had to go through. I read that mail. Here's the letter I opened up. A wife writing to the chief of police that her husband used to go ahead and spend his money drinking. He'd spend his heydays drinking. Now he's going to AA and he's spending his heydays gambling. He's not drinking, but he's spending his heydays gambling in AA club. All those letters read that her husband was spending their heydays Again. So after a couple hours, the chief of police comes. What do you think about it? I says, Chief, I'll tell you what. You're the chief of the city of Cleveland, down. How many hundreds and hundreds of policemen that's looking that you got on the police department, that's just new in the police department, they don't have the experience like somebody that's in there five or ten or fifteen or more years. These new rookies got to learn. They got to learn something as a policeman. And who do you think we are in AA? This is new to us. we got to learn too. We have to learn. And I said, I only ask you to don't spoil the reputation of AA. I'll stop this gambling. I'll guarantee you. There's no gambling going on in Cleveland now in the AA meetings. There is no gambling. When I was in Des Moines, Iowa, leading the meeting with Bill Wilson, 
Now, don't get this confused. Ray Harrison and Addie Harrison is two different parties. Ray Harrison is the prosecutor of Des Moines, Iowa. When the curtain went up, Dr. Bill Wilkins and I sitting on the stage, and Ray Harrison looked at the three Baltimore. This gives you an idea of what AA is. And he says, I never would have believed there's that many people in AA. This would be a good time to go ahead and ask if there's anybody got anything against the prosecutor of Des Moines, Iowa. Raise your hand. On the second balcony, your hand went up and Arthur ran over there with a microphone. And the man says, Mr. Harrison, I don't have anything against you, but I'd like to go ahead and have an understanding. I've been in AA five years, and every time I go ahead and walk down the street, somebody will go ahead and say, look at that man there. He's the best-dressed man in the city of Cleveland. He was the biggest drunk in Des Moines, Iowa. He was the biggest drunk in Des Moines, Iowa. Look at him today. How nice, look at a nice appearance that he's got. He's the best-dressed man in Des Moines, Iowa. And he, says, I, and he was arrested 73 times for drinking. And look at him today. Five years in AA. Look at the appearance he's got today. And that's all I heard, Ray, was 73 times I was arrested for drinking. So for curiosity's sake, I thought I'd go ahead and find out how many times I really was arrested. And it's not 73, it's 79. So Ray Harrison asked if there's anybody else got anything to say in that. Handling up on the third balcony and the usher ran over there the microphone and the man says, Mr. Harrison, I don't have anything against you, but I'd like to have you know that I'm the proudest man in the state of Iowa because I slept in the same jail cell you did. <laughs> so the prosecutor explained himself. He was a prosecutor, and every time he got drunk, the police knew he was a prosecutor, they'd take him home. Forty-eight times they took him home. But these two police officers decided that they're going to take him to jail instead of home. So he got up in the morning, he's behind bars, his courtroom is upstairs, he's got to be there at 9.30. So he called the turnkey and he says, get me a piece of talk, and he wrote on that gray wall, Ray Harrison, the prosecutor of Des Moines, Iowa, slept in this cell, do not be late. What happened? That writing was on that wall. A year later, Ray Harrison, the prosecutor, ran for a judge, and he was elected as a judge, even with that writing on that jail cell. Finally, Ray Harrison asked Bill Wilson and I, he says, that he had a dear friend of his, a well-educated man, and we can't get no place with him to join AA. Will you two go over? Bill Wilson says, Ed, this is your case. So Ray Harrison took me over to this man's house. I talked to that man for three hours, for three hours, with tears coming down my eyes. If you do what I tell you to do, I'll guarantee that you'll be the happiest man in the world. You'll be on top of the world in no time. Well, I talked to a lot of judges and I talked to priests and ministers, but I never heard anybody talk like you. I'll join AA. You do what Ray Harrison tells you to do because Ray Harrison joined AA. Do what he tells you to do and I'll guarantee that you'll be on top of the world in no time. A year later, Ray Harrison called me. He says, Mr. Andy, I don't know what the hell kind of a magic you got. But that man you talked to, his wife got the divorce, he's not going to lose his home. He's got his job back, and he's got his friends back. What do you think? We run him for a governor of Iowa. We run him for a governor. I picked up Jim Cassidy, Clarence Snyder. Oh, Jim Cassidy. Jim Cassidy was one of the top prosecutors in Cleveland, Ohio, in Tahoga County. And he was an alcoholic. He was an alcoholic. He lost his law practice. He was on ISIS. Jim Cassidy was on Skid Row, panhandling from the printer shop. When the chief asked me to go ahead and put him in AA, I got Jim Cassidy in AA had Harold Shaw, co-sponsored him because Harold Shaw was the secretary of the chief of police. And I says, I went down to Columbus and got him his law practice back. 
year later, I went over to his office and I said, Jim Gamora, when you come, come dressed up in the best you got. I said, oh. He says, now what the hell is on your mind? I'm going to run you for a gut. He says, Andy, I thought you were the smart man. You're nuts. He says, you're nuts. If the newspapers find out that I was on skid row, lost my law practice, I won't even have this office. I said, Jim, I agree with you. But I don't operate that way. I went to the press and train dealer and told him what I was going to do, and I asked him what they were going to do, and they said nothing of what he's done before it's what he's doing from now on. And here it is in writing, to put it all in writing. I ran capacity for a judge, and he won six terms as a judge until he retired. So they ran, this man, Ray Harrison, ran in for a governor. He won two terms, and people read about him. Two terms as a governor of Iowa. And then he ran for the United States Senator, and he won as the United States Senator. Senator Hughes, Governor Hughes of Iowa. That's Alcoholics Anonymous. That's AA. People respect Blair Snyder said. People respect the person who made it. We got mine. We can go ahead and do more with our minds than somebody else. Without AA. Because AA is peace to something. We believe in God. God is helping us. God gave us this year. He gave us all of this. This is what we should do, is to go ahead and hold on to it. Hold on to it with all our might. And pray to God to go ahead and help us with this AA program. There are millions and millions and millions of people, social drinkers today, that will become alcoholics in the future. And it's just like Clarence Snyder. The Bourbon group, the pioneer group, the pioneers, and we are the pioneers for those millions and millions of social drinkers today that will become alcoholics, and we are the pioneers to help them like we did. And I want to remember for the rest of my living life that I would rather have the spirit of God here than the spirit of alcohol here, and I want to thank you all for listening.